why couldn't our Cowboys play the, this Packers team, right? What was up with that? It's a different team this week. You knew he couldn't be perfect every week. You began to wonder about it, but even Aaron Rodgers can make some mistakes, right? Hey, Jerry, I did want to say this morning I was talking about John Collier and how much of a fanboy I am for John Collier and all the marathons he runs and stuff. Jerry Bradshaw here, two-time Boston Marathon finisher and ran some other marathons as well, along with scuba diving and other things. But Jerry, that is one of the things I've just kind of... You, you decide, as you go through life, you figure out a few things you're never going to do. That's something I'm never going to do. I have no desire to do it because I do have a vague understanding of how much pain and suffering y'all have to go through in order to do something that amazing. So I'm going to pass on that, but I'm going to applaud those who, who do. And I'm sure we've got a few others maybe even in here tonight, who have uh, taken that one on. Well, um, I heard there was an accident on the, on the tollway. Anybody experience that? Okay, yeah, I heard it's, like, bad. Because so, somebody texted me that was supposed to help out tonight and said, uh, I'm going to be 30 minutes late. So that's a bad one, especially on a Sunday when usually it's easy breezy on the tollway. Um, insider tip, I guess, from a preacher. Every time I preach, I want to present the gospel. I think that's, in some way or another, whether you're deep in the Old Testament or you're talking about the Easter story, you want to find a way to talk about the gospel because that's what we are called to do. That's what saves us. Now, sometimes it's a little harder than other times. This morning, self-control, a little harder to get the gospel hook in there. But tonight, it will not be hard at all. So I want to start out with this basic question, which is, if Jesus were to just walk in the room right now and start interviewing us, you know, one by one, imagine that scene, that would be amazing, and he were to ask you, are you sure that you're going to heaven, how would you answer that? And beyond that, uh, he would say, okay, how do you have that assurance? What would you say? Well, there have actually been surveys just kind of out in in the general public as to how people answer that question. No surprise, pretty much everybody believes they're going to heaven, all right? Whether they're, they go to church or they haven't darkened the door of a church in, in decades, uh, pretty much everybody believes they're going to heaven. And the reasons they give as to why they have that belief or that certainty are one of two almost always. Number one, I am a good person. I mean, this is on the surveys. Most people answer, well, you know, why do you think, I, well, I, I think I'm going to heaven because, you know, I'm basically a good person. I'm a good guy. I'm a good dad. I'm a good friend or whatever. Uh, the second answer that comes up very often is I follow the Ten Commandments, um, which I've, I think you've got to give people some credit. Those answers, they may reveal some ignorance, but they also reveal some knowledge of what the Bible teaches. I mean, goodness is part of the salvation equation, to be sure. Um, and the Ten Commandments, yeah, that's pretty core uh, teaching in the Old Testament, laying out uh, the basic principles of the law of God in the Old Testament. So there's some Bible knowledge there, at least. So that's some good news. Um, I mean, God saw those Ten Commandments um, as being so central, right, uh, to the life of the people that He gave them, or He carved them in stone on two separate occasions and gave them to his servant Moses. So pretty important. Um, and the people would cite the Ten Commandments as the reason for their belief that they are in fact saved. It, it makes sense. In fact, 
uh, 2,000 years ago, Jesus had his own man-on-the-street interview with a guy we know as the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18. And that conversation was about salvation, was about inheriting eternal life, and it centered around the Ten Commandments. Um, That young man told Jesus that he believed uh, that he was saved because since he had been a young boy, he had fulfilled the Ten Commandments. And that's why he told Jesus, I believe I'm okay with God. Well, Jesus then began to do what? If you remember, Jesus began then to start listing the Ten Commandments. Luke chapter 18, verse 21, and that is when the young man interrupts Jesus, 18, verse 21, and says, All of these I have kept since I was a boy. So following ten divine commands, following God's top ten principles for living, no sweat. I mean, just do these ten things and you're saved, right? Well, I think you can probably already begin to anticipate where we're going tonight. Um, It's not quite that simple, is it? So, Exodus chapter 20, here we go with a little test for each of us. And this is not only for us, but this is as we think about sharing the good news with others, evangelism. The good news is only good news when you realize how bad the bad news is, okay? Um, So commandment number one, you are no doubt familiar with the first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. Simple enough. Each person must put God in first place at the top. I can't serve other gods. I can't allow other gods to compete with the God of the universe for supremacy in my life. And in order to fulfill that, that I have no other gods before God, it's not that I say God is my God. That's not what it is. It's that I live that way, all right? It's that I live in such a way as God has priority over everything, okay? So the question then is, Let's start at the very beginning, the first commandment. How am I doing with numero uno? How am I doing with the very first of the Ten Commandments? Am I keeping God above all else in my life? Am I allowing other gods to compete with Yahweh for supremacy? Or maybe, just maybe, if I'm totally honest, I haven't always kept that commandment. So perhaps, if we're honest, we would say that we have all even, I won't speak for you, but I think we might say we have all broken the very first, the very first of the Ten Commandments. The bottom line is God is first, nothing comes before God if I give something other more attention than God, if I give something or someone more of the affections of my heart than I am giving the Lord my God, uh, anything else comes before Him, then I've broken that first commandment, all right? Um, it could be 
a job, a career that comes before God in terms of the affections, in terms of the energies, in terms of the focus of my life. It could be a boyfriend or a girlfriend. It could be the Dallas Cowboys come next September, right? Um, it, could be, um, it could be anything. Whatever it is that I love more than God that has become more the center of my life than God, then that's a false God for me. Anything that takes Him out of the center of my life or rivals Him for that position is an idol, is a false God. It doesn't need to be an image that you bow down to, all right? Um, so I guess you can see where we're going. There isn't really, there isn't one of us that hasn't at some point broken the very first commandment. And if you say you haven't, then you've broken another one of the Ten Commandments, the command against lying, okay? Um, so you've broken two of them. You've given false testimony uh, and managed to kill two commandments with one stone, right? All right. So how good am I, really? I mean, if I can't keep the first commandment, how good am I? Do I still think I'm a good person? Do I still think that that is going to be enough to earn salvation for me when I can't even keep the first one? How about the commandment about misusing the name of God? Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not... Now, we often take this as cursing, right? That's not what it is. It's misusing. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses His name. So certainly cursing, um, invoking the name of God uh, in a situation as kind of an exclamation point on your anger, or how great that burrito was. Or... Just using the name of God like any other word. Just using it casually as if it's any other word. Like you could be, you could be singing the song, you could be singing a praise chorus from church, but not thinking about it. You're just whistling while you work, and you're just, you're just saying the name of God, and you're not even thinking about it. It's just a song. It's just a tune that you're humming. I don't know. You may be going, wait a second. I think that's misusing the name. If you look at the Hebrew culture, they didn't just throw the name of God out there like it was some random word. And so, if you've said, my God, to emphasize a point that you want to make, or Jesus Christ in a non-sacred way, if you've done that, then you've broken that commandment. We had this issue in Brazil because all the Brazilians would say, meu Deus, my God. I mean, just all the time. And so we had to, like, train the church there, look, you're a believer now. You understand who God is. It's not just a word that you get to use to make your point, right? Um, so not taking the name of God seriously, that's not something we talk about that much anymore. Probably because it gets broken so regularly, we don't really want to think about that, that God is not going to hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name, who's casual with his name. Now, here's the thing. When we think about the Ten Commandments, as it's been said before, they are not the Ten Suggestions. They are the Ten Commandments. We're not talking about the SAT. We're not talking about the ACT. We're not talking about, wow, you could be a National Merit Scholar 
because you only missed a few of the questions on the exam. This is not a sliding scale. This is not grading on the curve. This is you miss a question, you're out. There is holy, there is not holy. There is good, there is not good. And if you fail to walk in step with any one of God's commands, you are not good. You are not holy. You are, according to James, a lawbreaker. James says in chapter 2, verse 10, For whoever keeps... Listen to... Think about the words. Really think about the words here. James is writing, brother of Jesus, Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. You can look that one up. James chapter 2, verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. God is pure. He's perfect. God is good. Truly good. God is holy. 100% holy. And we struggle with that because we live in a world where nothing else is. Nothing else is like God. If you had a gallon jug of drinking water... And I just put two eyedropper little drops of anthrax in that water. Could I pour you a cup of that? You want to drink that? 99% cancer-free is not what we're looking for. 99% anthrax-free drinking water, not what we're looking for. 99% good, James says, is not good. That is infected. That is poisonous. Um, there is no sin in God. There is no sin, none in heaven. I can't show up at the door of paradise holding a suitcase full of sins that I've committed my entire life, hundreds, thousands of sins, and expect the pearly gates to throw open and just waltz right into the throne room of God. Because if I walk into the throne room of God with my impurities, then that place is not pure anymore. I have brought my contaminations with me. Habakkuk 1 verse 13. The prophets do a really good job of nailing this one down. Habakkuk 1.13 says, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. So the prophet is just telling us humans, uh, his brothers and sisters, he's saying, God doesn't wink at sin. God doesn't overlook sin. God doesn't pretend that sin is no big deal. Um, commandment number eight, back to our little test, our little holiness test, our goodness test for eternal life. Commandment number eight, we're going to skip a few, although I think we could, it'd be really interesting to just work through each one of the commandments, but that would take us probably four or five hours, so let's not do that, okay? Commandment number eight, though. You shall not steal. <laughs> you shall not steal. 
Now, the question again, we like to interpret that according to our own standards of, well, you know, the question is not whether you have stolen a car or whether you have robbed a bank or whether you have committed identity theft and emptied somebody's bank account. That's not the question. The question is, have you ever stolen? Have you ever taken something that wasn't yours? Have you ever downloaded a song off the internet that you did not pay for? Have you ever burned a movie onto a DVD that you did not purchase? Have you ever borrowed somebody's a CD with some software that they had so that you could install it on your computer for free? Have you ever done anything like that? How about this? Have you ever stolen time at work? When you've been in when you've been in clocked in Getting paid by your employer, you're not on your lunch break or your coffee break, you're on company time, but you're kind of doing your own thing. You've got your side hustle going, or your solitaire going, or whatever it is. Have you ever taken a pen? Have you ever taken a paper clip from work? Have you ever cheated on your taxes just a little bit? It's really clear-cut. Thou shalt not steal. I guess we've all managed to shatter that one as well. Then there's number nine. Commandment number nine. Not to lie, not to bear false witness. The command to be honest. The command not to deceive, not to exaggerate, not to embellish the truth. Not to make false claims or lie to other people. To be a liar... It is not required for you to be a career liar, all right? Uh, It doesn't have to be an everyday thing for you. If you have prevaricated once, I like that word, if you've lied once, then you are a liar. You've broken that commandment. The phone rings. Your wife picks it up. Tell them I'm not here. It's a lie. It's being dishonest. Um, Have you ever, or did you ever, as a teenager, tell your parents something that wasn't true about where you were, about what you were doing, about who you were with, about who was driving, about who was at that party with you? Again, clear cut. The Bible tells us in James 2, verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. Like I said, to get to the good news, you got to understand the bad news. And God's top ten list, God's ten commandments, um, we work down the list and we find ourselves on the wrong side of those commandments time and time again when it comes to being in the presence of a God who is holy, 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 there are two kinds of people. There are guilty people, and there are innocent people. And if you've ever been taught, oh, the Ten Commandments, that's just old, we don't have to worry about that anymore. Well, Jesus quoted the Ten Commandments in Luke 18. 
Still very important stuff, right? So here's what we like to do. Okay, Gordon, I, I get that, but what we like to do is to compare ourselves, right, to other people. So we can either justify, well, yeah, I did that, but here's why I did that. Or I'm not near as bad as this other guy over here. And that is a very easy thing to do. I mean, compared to that person or compared to most folks, I'm doing a pretty good job, I think. I am a good person. In general, I'm not so bad. Um, but let's continue the little test. And I call this the... <laughs> I call this the Hitler test, okay? <laughs> the Hitler test goes like this. Um, of course, you've heard about this guy. That's why it's a handy test. I don't have to explain much about who Hitler was to you. I think pretty much everybody agrees, one of the most evil people to ever live. Just one of the greatest villains of history. Managed to kill millions of innocent people um, when he was in power. So, so the Hitler test is the scale, right? Just imagine this line of goodness, right? Over here. The best person to ever live, the most morally per perfect person to ever live, Jesus. In fact, absolute moral perfection. And then imagine, I don't know, there might be someone on past Hitler. I mean, we don't have everyone in history, uh, all their bar barbarous deeds recorded for us. But we'll say Hitler is at the other end of the scale. Jesus and Hitler. Um, so what I ask when, when I think about this is, so at one end, we've got someone who never committed a single solitary sin, never stumbled when it came to the laws of God. And at the other end, we've got someone who was just outright wicked, depraved, heartless, evil. So on this continuum, where do I see myself? Now, where I would like to see myself? Well, come on. I'm, 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 obviously, I'm not with Jesus, but I'm more at that end of the scale. But that's not accurate, is it? Because that's perfection. This is imperfection. Am I closer to being perfect, or am I closer to being imp Which is a more accurate depiction of who I really am? So the comparison game, it's not a good game. It's not a helpful game because the truth is, I'd like to think I'm closer to Jesus than to Hitler. After all, I do more good stuff on balance than bad stuff. But the truth about me, when I measure myself against the metric of absolute perfection, holiness, flawlessness, the perfect love of Jesus Christ, and the badness of somebody like Hitler... Honestly, I know which side of the scale I'm going to end up leaning toward, and it's not cozied up next to perfection. Romans 3.23, Paul, who was a master at presenting the gospel, and he understands the bad news has got to be understood before you get to the good news. And so he writes in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know it's true. And Paul just tells us, everybody, everybody sinned. And just before that, just before Paul tells us we're all sinners, by the way, he's not just making you feel bad. This is the guy who says, I'm the chief of sinners. <laughs> I'm the worst, right? And before he tells us that, he tells us in verses 19 and 20, 
He tells us why that recognition is so important, that we come to terms with that. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, verse 20, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by obeying the law. Rather, and this is very important, this is why you don't want to throw the Old Testament out, okay? You don't want to quit on the Ten Commandments. He says in verse 20, rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. We become aware of our sinfulness. Did you notice that phrase in there as well? So that every mouth may be silenced. Paul is telling us, look, don't don't start listing off your accomplishments, the good deeds that you have done, your spiritual success stories. He says, shut your mouth and recognize that before God, you are simply unrighteous. You and Hitler are in the same boat. You're sinners. So he concludes that passage by saying that the law exists so that I and so that, you, so that we may become conscious of sin. Now let me just share with you very quickly, we'll finish up here, but just share very quickly why I think the law that God has laid out in the Old Testament, much of which we see repeated in the New Testament, why that law is so important to us. The first reason is that the law, as we've been talking about, it reveals how sinful I am. It's a powerful diagnostic tool that the great physician uses to say, okay, here you've got a problem, here you've got a problem, here you've got a problem, here you've got a problem. The law shows that to me. It's painful, but it's an important function of the law. The second reason it's important is that the law, as Paul talks about there, as far as shutting our mouths, the law basically does away with any sort of spiritual pride or religion-based pride. I'll be honest with you, compared with God's will revealed in the Bible, I have a lot of failure in my life. A lot of failure. Um, So I don't have a lot of room for bragging when it comes to my own righteousness. I can see why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so when I read and when I meditate on God's law, I am attracted to it because of its depth, because of its beauty, because of its truth, because it doesn't sugarcoat things, because it shows me honestly how I measure up. It's pretty tough going, though, but it's helpful. The law of God is, man, it's like a two-ton wrecking ball just slamming, slamming against this alabaster facade of my own righteousness, my own goodness. And when I study, and when we study the law of God, I believe our delusions of spiritual grandeur, of being good people, of being law keepers, those delusions just shatter and fall to the ground. And as Paul says, I can't even, I can't utter a word. 
in my own defense. I'm silenced by the law. My crimes are clear, and I have no defense. Now, we're getting close to the good news. The third thing the law does is the law draws us to the wounded feet of Jesus. That's what it does. Paul said in Romans 3.20, which we looked at a few minutes ago, that because of the law we become conscious of our sins. This consciousness of my sinfulness, of our sinfulness, it is a force that pulls us toward the Lamb of God, the one who sacrificed himself to wash all of our sins past, present, and future away. Galatians 3 talks about this in 23 to 25. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners of the law, Paul writes. We were held prisoners of the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law, he says in verse 24, was put in charge to do what? Was put in charge to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. He lays it out. The law took you to Jesus and then released you, set you free. Very important word there in verse 24, to be justified. To be justified, of course, to be just, to be made right, to be made good, um, to be completely uh, acquitted of all charges against you. Made right, of course, not by our own behavior, by our own spiritual resume, but made right by the blood of Jesus Christ. So I walk in favor with God because of my faith in Jesus. Now, John chapter 1 is peculiar. It's not like the other Christmas stories, right, in, in Matthew and Luke. Uh, it is a peculiar Christmas story, a peculiar introduction to Jesus, but it's a beautiful one. John chapter 1, verses 14 to 17. The Word, that's Jesus. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full, do you remember the two words? Full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning Him, verse 15. He cries out saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because He was before me. From the fullness of His grace, we have received one blessing after another. Verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus, God in the flesh, living among us, a perfect life, perfect yielding to God's laws, a perfect love for all people, including sinners that He came in contact with, perfect service, perfect ministry to those around Him, live this life full of grace, and full of truth, both coming together in this one person of Jesus Christ. And through His grace, John says, we have received blessing piled on top of blessing. That's good news. Consider these words, ancient words from Mozart's Requiem. I like this picture Mozart has. 
Remember blessed Jesus. Remember blessed Jesus that I am the cause of your journey. Do not forsake me on that day. Seeking me, thou didst sit down weary. Thou didst redeem me, suffering death on the cross. Let not such toil be in vain. God hates sins. God loves sinners. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And we live with this awareness, this humility, because of our awareness of our own sinfulness. We live in a world of corruption and degradation, of violence. And despite the ugliness of this that we see in the world around us, the Bible affirms, for God so loved the world. He wants to redeem this place. He wants to redeem these people. He loved it so much that He gave His only begotten. And the only way that God could could draw this sin-stained world back into His loving arms, the only way that God could unite us to Him once again was the scandal that is the cross. It's foolishness to Gentiles. It's a stumbling block to the Greeks. That this love story would consummate with the death of God's only Son on a lonely hill. My sinfulness and God's love colliding on the cross. And through that extreme measure, my salvation is secure. My inheritance of eternal life is guaranteed. Freedom and joy have been poured out on me. Grace and truth have been offered to me. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Well, grace and favor given us, a gift of forgiveness that cost us nothing, that cost Jesus, though, his life. Hear these words and experience these words from Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 25. Paul writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. So through that death on the cross, God's grace and favor are poured out on all of us who put our faith in that blood. So we need to, I'll just finish up, 30 more seconds here, but important 30 seconds, because I think we need to come to, to grips with kind of two significant truths out of this study tonight. One of them is that you and I, we will never be righteous enough. We will never work our way far enough on that continuum, on that scale, to, to be able to enter into the place of God, into the presence of God, based on our merits. And the second truth is that because of Jesus' sacrifice, all of us who have put our faith in His blood, been baptized into Christ, all of us will enter into His loving arms, and that is something we don't need to doubt because it doesn't depend 
on us. It depends on Him and His sacrifice. And God made you. God knows you. He knows the good, the bad, and the ugly. God loves you more than you can comprehend. And God is calling out to you and to me and to all sinners to come to Him by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together as we finish up. Holy God, as you present the bill of indictment against me, as you present your holy law and invite me to consider how I measure up and quite frankly how I don't measure up, it becomes very clear to me, it becomes very clear to us. There is no way that we can be saved based on our own merits, based on our own goodness. As painful as it is, Father, we are thankful and grateful for the law that reveals so clearly who we are. And we're thankful for the story of Jesus that reveals to, to us that in spite of that, how much you love us and to what extent you have been willing to pay that ultimate price to bring us back into fellowship with you. And we say thank you because of that. We're grateful. We worship. We gather to sing your praises because of that. And we have, in fact, received blessing upon blessing because of Jesus. It's in his name we pray, and in his name we worship. Amen. Let's be standing.